0: But see, I can't emphasize enough the importance of where we draw our strength from. Where do we draw our strength in our sanctification? Notice he says, may the God of hope fill you. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit... This is Shoreline.com. Let's pray together. God, your word is eternal, and our lives are very temporal, so we're thankful that we have the opportunity to open up the scriptures today to study this text, and we're asking by your Holy Spirit that you would teach us that you would apply this text, illuminate it to us, that you would fill our hearts, as we just read, with hope. So, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity, for this freedom, to gather in your name today and to study your word. We ask now that you would instruct us by your spirit to the glory of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a Danish proverb that says something like this, eggs and oaths are both easily broken. Uh, The truth is we will often make grand and glorious promises to others only to default on what we said we would do. Or maybe this has happened to you. Someone has promised you something and they were not faithful to their word. Maybe it was a dad who promised to be there for your birthday. Maybe it was a husband who promised to be faithful to you unto death. Or a sister who promised to keep what you shared with her confidential. Maybe it was a client who said, our companies are going in 50-50. Maybe it was a business partner who said, I'm going to bring you in and and you're going to be right alongside me. Maybe it was a friend who promised, no, I'm not going anywhere. Uh, Maybe it was a child, your child, who promised you that they were telling the truth. I'd venture to say there's not a single person here in our congregation who's not been affected by a broken promise, someone who has disappointed them. If you watch The Office, just think Scott's Tots. There's someone who let you down. And here's the thing, the recipient of the promise, the recipient, not the person who made the promise, the person who received the promise, now has something that was said to bank on, something to to look forward to, something to believe in. And we often call this hope. You see, promises and hope are inextricably linked together. In this way, a promise is made and then we hope that what was promised will come to pass. And and sadly, many of us have misplaced our hope in someone or something that failed us, that didn't deliver, that was forgotten or broken. Eggs and oaths. They're easily broken and our hope is easily broken when it's misplaced. As the proverb says, hope deferred, It actually makes the heart sick. Now, is this how God is? Is God the proverbial dog owner who holds the ball and pretends to throw it so that we get excited and we chase after it? And yet he's been holding the ball behind his back all along. No, glory to God. Unlike us, he is faithful and true. You see, there's an incredible difference between what the world says when the world uses the word hope and what the Bible speaks about when we talk about biblical hope. So when the world says hope, here's what they mean. I hope that it's a nice day today weather-wise. I hope the pastor doesn't go long today. Sorry about that one. Wishful thinking, I hope my team wins. Whatever it is, it's wishful thinking. But see, biblical hope is way different than this. Biblical hope is certainty. Biblical hope is being sure. So you could say biblical hope is the watchful anticipation that you know God will deliver on what he's promised. The scripture says we have hope as an anchor to our souls or for our souls because the one who promised has never lied and he's never defaulted on what he said he would do. So today we're going to be studying Romans chapter 15 verses 8 through 13 and we're going to see how God's promises back in the Old Testament have been fulfilled in the gospel of Jesus Christ and how his faithfulness to keep his promise proves our faith in its trustworthy word. We're gonna see today how the work of Christ provides a few things. It provides mercy for the outcast sinner. And unlike the failures of those who don't keep their empty promises on earth, we're gonna see how the work of Christ produces hope in all who trust in the gospel. So the title today is Truth, Mercy, and Hope. And we'll see all three of these in our text. Now we left off last week in Romans 15 verse seven with a therefore. And the therefore summarizes how we are to live in the covenant community of grace we call the church the church which is the buttress and pillar of truth in a world filled with lies and so we read in verse 7 look at it with me romans 15 7 he says welcome therefore welcome one another just as christ has welcomed us for the glory of god remember the church in rome was filled with both ethnically jewish believers and ethnically Gentile believers. A Gentile, by the way, is just simply someone who's not born from Abraham. They're born outside of the Jewish lineage. And so in that church there in the first century, there was a slew of cultural differences. And this would have brought a lot of tension in the church. So we've learned how we're to deal with one another. We learned last week, we're to bear with one another. And that doesn't mean this sort of bearing with one another where you grit your teeth and cross your arms, you've got to bear with each other in the church. That's not the idea. The idea is we, we support one another. We bear as if in bearing children. And at the end today, we'll have a time of baby dedication. How important it is to bear children, to support them, to care for them, to welcome them, to bear their burdens and receive one another. Here's what Spurgeon says about that before we get into our text today, just to summarize last week. He says, Christ did not receive us because we were perfect, praise God, because he could see no fault in us or because he hoped to gain somewhat at our hands. Ah, no. But in loving condescension, covering our faults and seeking our good, he welcomed us to his heart. So in the same way and with the same purpose, let us receive one another. That's how we're to bear with one another in the church. And so we've talked for the last few weeks about this fictitious scenario between an older Jewish believer named Esther and a younger New believer who's a Gentile, Roman named Claudius. And we saw how they were to to interact with one another in the fellowship. And what we're going to see today is how the gospel would encourage them differently, uniquely. It would encourage the Jew a little bit more unique than it would the Gentile. And yet, the gospel ministers to all believers in a powerful way. So beginning in verse 8, Paul ties the together of verse 6 and the one another of verse 7 he ties that back to the gospel, back to the Old Testament. And he also ties it to his own priority in his ministry to the Gentiles. We're going to look at that next week. So if you guys read ahead, starting in verse 14, you can read ahead of what we're going to go, where we're going to go next week, and we'll see Paul's his priority. He didn't just box the air aimlessly. He had a very targeted, intentional ministry to the Gentiles. And we'll look at that next week. But for today, we're going to see three important things in verses 8 through 13. We're going to see the premise the promise, and the prayer. So with that in mind, that's our outline. Let's begin with the premise, and this has two aspects to it. Verse 8, here's the premise. I tell you, Christ became a servant to the circumcised. He did this to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So, church, note with me first that phrase, Christ became a servant. He became, that's in the perfect tense. That means it happened in the past and it continues to be uh, permanent today. In fact, that word servant in the Greek is where we get the word deacon. And in an interesting sense, you and I are all, as believers, we're all deacons in an unofficial sense. We're all servants of Christ. We're all servants of the church. In fact, uh, Christian Zamber this Monday night at our men's, uh, men's ministry Uh, He challenged all of us as men, after watching a powerful sermon together, he challenged us as men that we should walk into the church with the posture of a deacon. We should come in saying, I am here to serve the Lord and to serve the church in an unofficial sense. There is an official, uh, recognized, appointed office of deacon, and you have met the three deacons we've just appointed, and uh, by God's grace, we intend to uh, see more men uh, appointed to the office of deacon and elder. Um, But It's interesting that that's what the the word he uses here. Jesus became a deacon, a servant to who? Well, not just to anyone, but it says to the circumcised. Paul says Christ the Messiah came to to serve the circumcised. Now, what does he mean by circumcised? He doesn't just here refer to the Jew. More broadly, he's referring to the promise of Abraham with the seal of circumcision. I'm not going to go into detail about what that is. You can look it up later. But circumcision was the act of cutting away. It was an act of consecration. It was intended for God's people, and it was intended to bring distinction to them, to emphasize them being his covenantal people. But here's why he did that. It was not only for them to enjoy his grace and say, I'm set apart for God's purposes, but it was also for them to extend his glory. So I am set apart not to make me special and that's the end result. I'm special so that I will go and I'll declare his glorious truth. In other words, I enjoy his grace, but then as Israel, I extend his glory out to, from Israel to the nations. What ended up happening, though, is that circumcision itself, it became marred, and it became just a badge of merit. It became a badge of pride and exclusivity. In fact, one of the daily prayers of a strict Jewish male was to thank God he was not three things. I thank you, God, I'm not a woman. I thank you, God, I'm not a Samaritan. I thank you, God, I'm not a Gentile. So it, you see, it, it produced this, oh, I'm distinct. And so it brought distinction in a negative light where pride and exclusivity rose up. And so the circumcised would be unwilling to mingle with the, the uncircumcised. And thus, you bring that into the church, you've got cultural baggage coming in as new believers. And so laying aside your convictions about food and festivals, that was a challenge for the Jewish Christians to overcome. But again, who's our example? What can we learn from Christ? Notice verse 8, I tell you Christ became a servant to the circumcised. There's a lot in that. There's a lot of implications here. How did Christ come? He came as a servant. He crossed the bridge from creator to creation. He crossed the chasm between eternity and time, entering time, and space, and matter. He stepped across the span of spirit, and into flesh, God incarnate. He willingly subordinated himself to the Father, and bodily, and he came humbly, not born above the law, as the giver of the law. I'm exempt from, no, he came under the law, and submitted to it. Notice what Paul says, to the church in Galatia in chapter four, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. So he he became a servant to the circumcised by becoming one of the circumcised. He came from the line of Eve of the tribe of Judah as a descendant of David and Abraham. And so Paul is saying, he says Christ here, he's saying that the Messiah, The Jewish Messiah is Jesus, and he came not to be served, but to serve. Now, he did this for two reasons. Here's the two aspects of this uh, premise. Number one, first he says in verse 8, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So that's the first thing. So the Jews would glorify God for his truthfulness. That's the first reason. But then secondly, he says in verse 9, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So, not only does the Jew give God glory for being truthful, but the Gentile gives God glory for mercy. So, we've already learned about the truthfulness aspect from Romans 9, 10, and 11. If you missed that sermon little mini series, you want to go back and, and uh, watch those or listen to those. Romans chapter 9 through 11. God, uh, there, Paul explains, was faithful to keep his covenant with Israel, even despite her unfaithfulness to him. God was faithful to keep his promise not on the basis of human performance, praise God, but on the basis of his grace. Yahweh revealed himself, Paul says, to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. God revealed himself to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. And with each one of them, he confirmed his covenant promise to bless them and to make them a blessing. There's two aspects to it. I'm gonna bless you and I'm going to make you a blessing. So notice with me on the screen, if we're taking note, we're not going to turn there, but you can uh, just reference it. The first is to Abraham in Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, God says, And I will make you, of you, a great nation. And I'll bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And here's the second part of that blessing. In you, all the families of, of the earth shall be blessed. You see, the Jews were blessed to be a blessing, not just because they exist as a people, but because the Messiah would come through the line of Abraham. So all the nations, all the families of the earth will have the opportunity of blessing because Christ came from Israel. So he promises that to Abraham. Then his son Isaac, we read about this in Genesis 26. If you've been doing your, maybe one year through the Bible, you've come across this recently Genesis 26 to Isaac, he says, Sojourn in this land, and I'll be with you, and I'll bless you. There's that first blessing. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. I'll establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I'll multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. So there's a land aspect to it as well. And then he says, And in your offspring, in your seed, All the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Again, a picture of being blessed and then through Israel to be a blessing, the Messiah. So not only Abraham, not only Isaac, but also thirdly, Jacob, Genesis 35. It says, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Remember, Jacob's name means heel catcher, deceiver, supplanter, came out of the womb, holding on to his brother's heel, wanting to be the firstborn and becoming the firstborn, Uh, but through deception. Uh, When he got the birthright, it was through deception. But God changes his name from deceiver, heel catcher, to Israel, which means governed by God, one who wrestled and was conquered by God. And so God goes on, and said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. So you're blessed, and there's going to be a nation rising from you. Israel as a people was blessed to receive these promises that they could look back on and count on. The word of God was true because he did bless them, and Messiah came through Israel they were a blessing to all the families of the earth. And we as Gentiles, the families of the earth, we not only can look at God's truthfulness to Israel, we can look and say, wow, I have received mercy. So Christ is the confirmation of the promises given to the patriarchs, which bolstered the Jewish Christians faith. But Christ is also the consummation of the mercies of God given to the nations. And that bolsters your faith. My faith, unless you're a Jewish Christian here today, I'd argue probably none of us are today, maybe one or two, we are mostly here comprised of Gentiles. So we can give God glory for his mercy. What is mercy? You've heard us define this in different ways. Justice or judgment is when you get what you deserve. Grace uh, is different than that. Grace is when you get what you don't deserve. God gives you his grace. So mercy is not getting what you do deserve. You deserve justice, you deserve wrath. And instead you receive mercy, which is getting, uh, not getting what you do deserve. Now the Gentiles were not included in the promise or the covenant made to Israel, at least not directly. So what do we deserve? We talk about what do we deserve? What is justice? We deserve, if we're out of the covenant, we're outside of the boundaries of the covenant, what do we deserve? We deserve wrath. And rejection and alienation. That's exactly what you have in your natural state. I know there's some guests here, some visitors here today. If you're here today or listening to this later and you're not a follower of Christ, in your natural state, listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2. And every one of us as Christians can remember, as he reminds us to remember, who we were before Christ. He says, Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, I think we have the verse, Ephesians 2. You were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. We were outside of the, the uh, covenant of Israel. He said, this is made by, in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and you were strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We just think that's what we were before Christ. We were, we were alienated. Uh, we were separated from Christ. We were strangers. We were living in the world lacking certainty, lacking hope. We were without God. We were atheists. We, we were those who were unbelieving. We, did, we didn't have God. But notice these words of encouragement. But now in Christ Jesus, you once who were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see, Christ became a servant of the circumcised to prove God's truthfulness in keeping his promise, which would prove the Jewish Christian's faith. But he also did this to cause we as Gentiles to glorify God for his undeserved mercy. So now that's the premise, right? Paul now goes to back up the premise with the promise. And I would argue anytime we have any assertion to say in this world, we got to back it up Through scripture. And so he backs it up with scripture with four Old Testament quotes. So let's look at this middle section, the promise, and we'll read through them. Verse 9, second half says, As it is written, therefore, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Okay, these are four different Old Testament quotes. If you're keeping count, we have one from the law, we have uh, one from the prophets, and we have two from what are known as the writings. So let's look at each one of these. The first one, verse 9, is a quote of King David, one of the writings. It's a psalm and it's found in two places. It's found in Psalm 18:49, And then it's found in 2 Samuel 22, 50, which is just a quote of Psalm 18. Now, headings to Psalms are very important. So don't just skip over uh, the heading when you're reading through the Psalms. They're important. In fact, Psalm 18, the heading says this, to the choir master. Don't worry, Micah, we're not gonna make that your title uh, in the future, not the choir master, all right? But that's an important aspect to this psalm. The choirmaster, a psalm of David, so we know who wrote it. The servant of the Lord, I think that's, that's important, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord when? On the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So this is written, Psalm 18, towards the end of David's life. This is decades and decades after Goliath. This is decades or years after Saul has died and the last of the threat to David has been laid to rest. He's no longer being chased around like a criminal. He has uh, seen Bathsheba and the fallout from that sin and her husband and Nathan, and he's also uh, had to bury ostensibly his son. And so he's defeated many enemies. He's overcome many obstacles, but you would argue Psalm 23 is the most popular song David ever wrote. But I would argue that Psalm 18 is the exclamation point on his life. This is the end of his life. And what he says in Psalm 18 is that, Lord, you, Yahweh, you've been my rock. You've been my deliverer. You've been my fortress. And you have been the one in whom I've taken refuge. A, a fortress is a place where you would go to hide out, to be protected from uh, the enemy. He says, that's who Yahweh is. He is in all of my battles that I've fought and succeeded, Yahweh has proven himself faithful. And so notice in verse 9, he says, Therefore I'll praise you among the Gentiles. David went out and conquered many Gentiles. And so among them, what was specifically notated about Yahweh? It's his might. So David is declaring the might of Yahweh. He says, I praise you among the nations, and I sing to your name. I love that he's emphasizing the faithfulness of the Lord among the Gentiles, that they're recognizing the might of God. Well, look at the second quote, verse 10. He says, again, it is said, and now we have a quote from Deuteronomy 32, 43. This is Moses. Moses was known as the servant of the Lord. Now, in uh, the text here in verse 10, it says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. But if you look on the screen, you notice it reads differently in Deuteronomy 32. The original, some of the original manuscripts have the way that it reads in Romans, but uh, in some manuscripts it reads like this, rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods, meaning all of creation. So the concept is still similar. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and he cleanses his people's land. And so in context, this is a song that Moses wrote and Like David, this was also towards the end of Moses' life. And in this song, if you go back and read Deuteronomy 32, you'll see that Moses begins towards the end to start to recount the judgment of God, the vengeance of God against sin. And I would argue this, church, it is impossible to appreciate the mercy of God divorced from the law of God and thus the judgment of God. In other words, it's hard to say, I appreciate your mercy if we don't realize that without his mercy, we would be facing his wrath. We live in a day where we walk into into a room and we just demand the respect. We demand, I mean, we get the trophy just for showing up, right? Your mom told you you you're special. So, Hey, I'm special. (laughs) So I walk in the room. I'm, you owe me something. You owe me. So we walk into uh, the presence of God, so to speak with that same mindset. Well, yeah, of course I'm, I'm a good person. I, I floss, so I should receive the mercy of God. I recycle, so I deserve the mercy of God. And we don't understand, no, the law of God, the judgment of God. It, it, that is what makes mercy so, so sweet. See, Spurgeon says it this way, grace is, the, grace is the free favor of God, the undeserved bounty of the ever-gracious creator against whom we have offended The generous pardon, the infinite, spontaneous, loving kindness of the God who's been provoked and angered by our sin, but who delighting in mercy and grieving to smite the creatures whom he has made is ever ready to pass by transgression, iniquity, and sin, and to save his people from all the evil consequences of their guilt. And so so he quotes Moses saying, hey, the nations can truly rejoice with Israel because Christ has fulfilled yeah. Yahweh's promise to the patriarchs in, in light, in view of God's vengeance against iniquity. Well, we have the third quote in verse 11. We opened our service this morning from this uh, reference. Verse 11 says, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. This is David again from the writings. This is Psalm 117.1. And uh, this is actually the smallest or shortest psalm in The salt uh, in the Psalms, and this psalm specifically, just in a couple verses, speaks of the steadfast love of the Lord and how his faithfulness will never run dry, his faithfulness endures forever. But notice what Paul's emphasizing in verse 11 he's saying, All the Gentiles are welcomed, all peoples are encouraged to extol him. There is no people group, no ethnicity that is excluded or beyond the reach of the mercy and love of God. Well, finally, Paul quotes Isaiah in verse 12. And he tells us it's Isaiah. He says, and again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. And then there's an appropriate semicolon there because this was a quote of Isaiah 11.10, but then he tacks on Isaiah 42 at the end where Isaiah says, in him will the Gentiles hope. And so this is a picture. If you look back in Isaiah 11, it's the stump of Jesse. It's a, it's a little stump where a, a root will grow out of and an unassuming descendant of David will come. And through him, the Gentiles will submit to his rule and he will recreate the creation. There will be renewed creation as he rules with righteousness. The nations will submit to him and they'll hope in him. So here's what, I think here's what Paul's doing. We have four Old Testament quotes. And in them, we see, of course, this idea of singing, of rejoicing, of praising, of hoping. But what I think we also see here is a little bit of a summary of the gospel. It's not an exhaustive picture of the gospel, but I think it's a little bit of a summary. Notice that we see, first of all, the might of God in protecting David. God is strong to save. We see, secondly, the judgment of God, that he's not impartial to sin, he doesn't wink at it. Thirdly, we see the love of God that extends to all peoples, no one is outside of his reach. And number four, we see the righteousness of God, which rules our hearts and is imputed to us by faith. So it's not an exhaustive picture, but what a medley, what a kaleidoscope of why we can rejoice as Gentiles in God's mercy, why? Because we see that God's might, he's mighty to save, He's a God of judgment, a God of love, and a God of righteousness. You see the gospel in these Old Testament quotes. So the premise is Christ is a servant to the circumcised. And the promise is that salvation will come to us, and because of that, we'll rejoice. Well, then what is the prayer? The prayer is found in verse 13. And I want to just challenge you to begin praying this prayer for your family, for your friends, for your church community, for your leaders. What a great prayer. Paul says this after recounting the scripture, he says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. What a great prayer. Note with me the emphasis here. What does Paul not say? Paul does not pray, may you conjure up joy and peace in your faith so that by the power of self-will, you may abound in hope. Now, sadly, we hear that message too often today in the world, and from the pulpit. We're challenged to grit your teeth and just do better and try harder, get out there and be a moralistically uh, good person. And then God will look at your moralism and say, oh, I've gotta save you. By the way, did you floss? Okay, good, you're definitely gonna be saved. That's the message this world promotes. Is there a place for obedience? Of course. There's plenty of commands in the New Testament and his commands are not burdensome, 1 John tells us. But I'm not obeying so that I'm saved. I'm obeying because I'm saved. And yet the world continues to drum this drum of may you stir up your own self-worth and your own positivity. I don't know if you've heard about the uh, woman a few years ago, about a decade ago. She decided to do everything Oprah had suggested. So she pulled up uh, Oprah.com. She pulled up O Magazine and all of the different episodes uh, from the show. And so she decided, I'm gonna do everything Oprah said I should do. And so she, <laughs> she lived a year without paper towels. Uh, she gave herself a makeover that year. She, of course, redefined her sex life according to what Oprah said to do. And she adopted a kitten. And so she did all of these things and by the end of the year spent $5,000 57 different challenges, 1,200 hours dedicated to it. What was the outcome? Well, on her blog, she wrote these exact words. These are her words. It was incredibly draining and it made me really sad. (laughs) That's what it, I'm gonna take this advice of being self-realized and have self-esteem and I'm gonna have positivity. See, the world says to do those things and those things sound good, yeah. I should have the power of positive thinking. Sounds great until you have a global pandemic. It sounds great until the doctor says it's cancer. It sounds great until you have a tragic loss, which all of us deal with. See, Paul doesn't say, I'm praying that God would help you abound in hope because life is so easy. No, this is in the midst of suffering and trial and loss. But see, I can't emphasize enough the importance of where we draw our strength from. Where do we draw our strength in our sanctification? Notice he says, may the God of hope fill you. You see, it's not that we conjure it up in our own strength. We receive it from the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul's prayer is that God would fill us to the extent that we have joy and peace in our faith and then that, that bubbles up and overflows in hope. John Piper says this. He asks, hope in what? What do we place our hope in as Christians? Hope in Jesus Christ. The emphasis falls on Christ as the ground of all our hope. Bank your hope on him, not yourself not your intelligence, not your health, not your money, not your job, not your reputation. None of these things can sustain your hope. They can collapse in a moment. God means for our hope to be firm and unshakable, and so he put underneath it his own son. He goes on to say this. This is so applicable. He says, at every turn in your life, say, Jesus, you are my hope. You are my hope for my salvation. You're my hope for my marriage. You're my hope for my children. You're my hope for my ministry. You're my hope that I will live and die well. In him will the Gentiles hope. You see, Psalm 121 says, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Is it from within? No, it's I lift my eyes to the hills. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will watch over Israel and neither slumber nor sleep. God is the God of hope. God is the one we pray to to fill us with hope. He's both the object and the origin of our certainty. We have certainty in what we believe, and yet our prayer, Paul's prayer, is that God would fill us with more certainty. We'd have joy and peace in believing, and that this would bubble over and abound in hope. Now, that prayer itself is just a great way to apply this text. We could just, we could just end with this, and I could just say as an application, pray that prayer. Pray that prayer for yourself, for your brothers and sisters. Uh, I, I ask uh, people every Monday on Facebook, How may I pray for you this week? and, and spend the week praying for people. Uh, a lot of them come to church here, a lot of them are just random people on Facebook. I'm like, I don't know who this person is, but I'm going to pray for them. And I want to start praying this prayer for them. Lord, I, I, I think of Deb today, and Lord, I pray that you, the God of hope, would fill Deb. With all joy and peace and believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit she may abound in hope. It's a great prayer, and we could just close the service today uh, asking us to pray that, and I I do. But I I think that we can apply this in three ways. Next week, if you read ahead, you'll see Paul's intention in his ministry to the Gentiles. But here's three ways we can apply this passage today. If you're taking note, uh, just these three. Number one, Christ's work, the gospel proves the reality of our faith see the jewish believers could look back at the faithfulness of yahweh to keep covenant with abraham with isaac with jacob and they could know even in the midst of their own stubbornness that they weren't going to be excluded you know what i'm done you've blown it for the last time you're out you're out of the covenant forever your salvation is in jeopardy because you've blown it again. No, they could look even in the midst of their own stubbornness and know God would not forsake them. You see, Christ's work proves though the reality of our faith. It, you could say it constructs an apologetic to bolster our faith and the truth of our faith. So today we're living in a time where many people are, the phrase is deconstructing. And the idea is that we need to, if what we mean by deconstructing is I need to go back and evaluate what I believe as a set of bricks. And I need to look at this doctrine of substitutionary atonement and say, okay, yes, let me understand what the Bible says about that. Oh, here's the Trinity. I want to understand the Trinity. Oh, here is what salvation, soteriology really is. And so I'm going to dive into that and understand it. And because of that, that has built this faith that I understand and that I hold to. If that's what we mean by deconstructing, then I'm for that, but that's not really what's meant. I think a better term is dismantling. So dismantling is evaluating it with critique and saying substitutionary atonement, let's toss that out. That's a little bit That's a little bit uh, harsh. How could a loving father? Oh, soteriology? Hmm. What does it mean to be saved? I don't know if I believe that. We'll throw that out. Oh, the scripture is God's word? No. And so it's not deconstructing, it's dismantling. And, and so I want to, Uh, Challenge us to be reminded that our faith is only as strong as the object we placed our faith in. So, if someone is deconstructing, they place possibly their faith in a pastor, in a person who's lied to them or wronged them or failed them, then I understand why they're challenged. Their faith was in the wrong object. Or if their faith is in a denomination, I have my faith in this network of churches. (laughs) Oh boy. We've seen every denomination recently have scandal or hit with challenge because no group is immune to folly. So if you placed your faith in a movement, in a, in a denomination, certainly uh, you're going to see that fall apart. If you placed your faith blindly in what your parents taught you, but you've never investigated the Bible, or truth for yourself. Well, what can happen is that we easily jump off the bandwagon as soon as we meet someone who's very sincere and genuine and convincing. Their arguments for truth seem convincing. So we deconstruct and leave the faith. But see, if our faith is resting on the person of Christ and the truth of God's word, we're never going to be disappointed. We're gonna, it's, it's, so it's not like pastors are like, man, I hope people don't ask the real hard questions about the Bible because we have no answer. You know, it's not like we're like, oh man, I hope no archeology span discovery comes out that disproves the Bible, because uh, that'll be bad for business. That's not the idea at all. You know, like we're not worried about that. Every time an archeological discovery comes out, it bolsters our faith and we go, oh, there it is. Thank you, Lord. Uh, th- like there's no atheist that's gonna have that argument that we're like, oh man, now we have no answer. <laughs> we, we are able to defend the gospel because Christ has fulfilled the law And Christ has fulfilled the promise of God. And so our faith is sure and steadfast, and it's proven. So believer, walk in boldness. See, the the work of Christ proves the reality of our faith. God has been faithful to keep his promises. Secondly, if you're taking note, number two, Christ's work, it provides something for you. It provides the reception of mercy. There's no way to attain mercy apart from the work of Christ. What does the scripture say about us as Gentiles? Verse nine, we're to rejoice for what? For the mercy that we've received. If we didn't receive the mercy, listen to what we would have. First Peter two, you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Glory to God. But then he says this, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is something we are called to rejoice in. What? That you and I, you believer, have been adopted into God's family. You have been accepted into the beloved. You have been redeemed from Adam's curse. You have been delivered from bondage. You've been bought with a price that you could never afford. You were justified, declared righteous before a holy God. You've been elected by the grace of God, regenerated by the spirit of God, and you've been converted from dead sinner to living saint. What did you do to deserve that mercy? What did you do? You showed up. What did you do to receive that mercy? What did you bring to the table? I love what Spurgeon says here. He says, our sinnership, there's a word, our sinnership is that emptiness into which the Lord pours his mercy. What did you bring to the table? You brought your emptiness, your deadness, your sin. And so you receive mercy, and that's something we can all worship God for, rejoice in. We're called over and over from these passages, from these quotes, to praise God. And did you know in the book of Revelation, there's multiple songs, but none of these songs are a solo, That, that all of them are God's people together, with one voice glorifying. In fact, the word saint in the New Testament is never used in a singular form. It's always used in plural form. We do this together. Uh, Spurgeon was asked, uh, what do you want the church to be? And he said, the, a close answer to correct is a choir. The church should be a choir. It means there's a lot of different voices, a lot of different, um, different people, but with one voice from every tribe, nation, and tongue, we declare the worth of God for his indelible mercy. We've received this mercy because of the finished work of Christ. So that's something we can rejoice in. But finally, number three, if you're taking note, Christ's work produces one more thing. It produces a response of hope. I've noticed on social media, there's a couple ways you can can, uh, describe yourself. So you have a profile name, and then there's what's known as a bio or a tagline. And some people have been silly with it. When I first got onto Twitter, I think I put bacon enthusiast think that was my, it would say donut enthusiast today, I think. And there's silly ways you can describe yourself. I'm, uh, I had fun once. It was terrible. You know, there's just like little silly ways you can describe it. Um, some people say, I'm a boyfriend, I'm a blogger, I'm a believer, whatever it is, like this little, little phrase. I think every Christian should and does have this as our bio, as our tagline. It's pilgrim abounding in hope. If your name's not pilgrim, by the way, um, put your name here. But you are, you are a pilgrim, are you not? You are a, a sojourner, an alien and a stranger, so it works. But we're people who are abounding in hope. The love of God, the hope of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And so we can abound. What does that mean? Piper says this, it means to overflow in hope, to brim with hope, to be full of hope. Hope that pushes out all contrary emotions, discouragement, depression, fear, anxiety, grumbling, and bitterness. Hope does not coexist well with these things. But when it's abounding and overflowing, they push these contrary emotions out. You see, he says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. When God has been faithful to keep his promise, that fills us with joy and it fills us with peace. When people break their promises, what does it do? It robs us of joy and it robs us of peace. So no matter who has failed you in the past, or who is yet to fail you tomorrow because it's going to happen, our God will always be faithful. And one day, near the end, when the scoffers among us ask, where's the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, things continue as they did from the beginning. And yet we know that every eye will see him. He'll be coming on the clouds, and with great glory, he'll be known as the one who is faithful and true, mighty to save, righteous in judgment, the one whose eyes are a flame of fire, who comes to make war, wearing many diadems, clothed in a robe dipped in blood, known as the word of God. From his mouth, the scripture says, comes a sharp sword, and on his robe and on his thigh, his name is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And until that day... When we meet him in the clouds, may we trust him to be faithful to every word he's ever spoken. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to close the sermon in a song, and then we'll sit back down and enjoy a wonderful time of dedicating some children to the Lord. Bow your heads with me. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Father, we thank you that we can bank on a faithful God whose credit score of reliability has been tested and proven 100% true. You're perfect in all your ways. Lord, you promised to bless Israel to be a blessing through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And your son came from heaven to earth born under the law, born of woman, to redeem those under the law. Lord, we thank you that Christ has come to provide truth to the Jew and mercy to the Gentile. Lord, we bank our lives on the gospel and we thank you for the finished work of Christ on our behalf. As we conclude this sermon, Lord, we are gonna sing in Christ alone, being reminded that it's all because of Christ. It's in his name alone that we'll receive mercy. So we give you all the glory, all the thanks, all the praise. We want to join with the other Gentiles from people from people, all through time and, and through every ethnic group to declare your praises who called us out of darkness into wonderful light. To that end, thank you, Lord, for your mercy. We rejoice for it, and we thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisishoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.